0: Amen. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The title of the message is Your Call to Ministry. So let me establish something up front. This is not a message for full-time preachers only, or people who are full-time in ministry, or even part-time. This is for anybody who's in Christ. You're going to hear that phrase. It's real important to remember that. That phrase. This, this letter to the Corinthian church is written by the Apostle Paul. Before he became known as Paul, his name was Saul. And around the ninth chapter of Acts, it says that Saul, still breathing threats, went to the high priest and asked for letters for Paul or Saul to literally go into a different country and bring back Jews who were professing the name of Christ. So for a while, Saul was a persecutor of Christians and an ambassador of the high priest. I talk to people sometimes who feel like God's given them a gift or given them a ministry, and they're saying, well, I'm I'm just waiting for that Damascus Road experience. Well, that's probably not going to happen that way. If you're a child of God, if you're in Christ, you don't need a Damascus Road experience. Why? Because Paul wasn't a Christian on the Damascus Road. When God got his attention and literally this bright light hits Paul and he hits the deck, and Jesus says, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? So I wasn't a believer yet. That was his salvation experience, not so much his call to ministry. That occurred a little later. I think some of us are waiting on the bat phone to ring. You know, we're like, you know, I kind of think God's telling me this, and maybe through prayer you just see this steady hand of God pushing you in a direction, but you're still hoping. Give me the next slide. You're waiting on the bat phone to ring. I don't know if you have one of those in your house. You know, how many of you remember the bat phone? The the new Batman movies don't have the bat phone, but back in the day when it was, you know, they put graphics up on the screen like POW and WHAMMY and stuff like that, Commissioner Gordon would always go and, you know, pick up the bat phone. He could get Batman. And some of you are waiting on, you know, I'm going to really serve God one day once the bat phone rings. Well, let's use today as your bat phone, all right? This is your wake-up call to ministry as a believer. Let me read the first few verses of the passage we're looking at. In fact... Let me read all eight verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. Paul speaking. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though We have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. First, what's your motivation? Your motivation should be because of Christ. I love the first verse. Just the first few words of verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. If we don't go any further, what controls you? For Paul, here's what he said. The love of Christ controls me. And in case it's a little confusing, some translations, in fact, the NIV, I think, does a better job of giving you the sense that it's not talking about my love for Christ that controls me. It's his love for me. That constrains me, compels me, controls me. Literally adds pressure that results in action. Now, back to Paul. What used to control Paul? It wasn't love. In fact, it was pretty close to hate. If you think about what Saul's motivation was when he persecuted Christians, his motivation was religious zeal, loyalty to the high priest, loyalty to the Jewish religion. And he hated the things of Christ. He hated the gospel. He hated the people that he was having to chase and bring back. And some of them actually be in hearty agreement with putting them to death. He said he cast his vote to have some of them put to death. His motivation wasn't love. Something's changed. Something's happened in Paul's life that he now says, Hey, I'm under control of something brand new. It's the love of God. And here's the good thing. The love of God was there before you ever knew God. Romans 5, 8 puts it this way. It said, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the love of Christ controls, compels, adds pressure that produces action. Let me ask you, don't answer out loud. (laughs) What motivates you? If you're a believer, what motivates you? Some people have gotten it kind of backwards. Their motivation is, I'm serving Christ in the hopes that He will love me. Some people are under such religious pressure that they somehow think they're going to get to heaven one day and it's just going to be a balancing act on a scale and they're hoping their good deeds are going to outweigh their bad deeds. Let me give you a little hint. It'll never happen. If you're hoping that God's going to look at all all your sin... And then all the things you did right, and it's gonna, he's going to say, well, that's good enough. Come on in. doesn't work that way. How many sins does it take to make you a sinner? One. Anybody here want to raise your hand and say, yeah, I think I've only committed one in my life. It's only been one time that I've thought the wrong thing, said the wrong thing, or done the wrong thing. Just, just once. I'm pretty good. I want to face God based on my merit. No, you don't. So it's not working for his love that compels us. It's the fact that he already loves you. And if you're in Christ, you've received that love. It's been demonstrated at the cross. And Paul says, we've concluded this. Literally, Paul's saying, I have taken inventory. I, I've, I've distinguished in my mind. And, and this is a brand new thing for Paul. Well, brand new since his conversion. Paul used not to think this way. Well, so Paul said, now as I add it up, I understand one Died for all, therefore all died. Let me tell you what Paul's thinking about. Paul's thinking about the system they had in place in Jewish religion, Jewish culture. And that was this. One day, on a day called Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, they would place the sin of the world upon this goat. It's called a scapegoat. They'd lead him out of camp. It, it, it always I just laugh when I think about that. How would you like to have that job? Your job is to take that goat out of camp and make sure he never comes back. Because that goat represented for the people, my sins have left. The next morning, you don't want to hear, bah, or whatever whatever a goat sounds like. Of course, what does that mean? Your sins have come back. Well, the sad thing is, the next day they started sinning all over again. They were looking forward to another year when they needed another goat. The goat never fully cleansed them. It never took away the sin. It just appeased God in their mind for a moment. So when Paul says, Jesus, when He died on the cross, He took sin away once and for all. This passage is not teaching universalism. It's not teaching that because Jesus died on the cross, everybody's saved. Because he's going to make real clear in a moment, it's those who are in Christ. So Paul says, Here's what I've concluded, therefore all have died, and here's the good news, so that. I love in this passage, there's some so that's and some therefore's. I just like the way Paul writes, because Paul will tell you something, and then he'll say, here's why I just told you that. Therefore, or so that. Why did Jesus die for all? Why did he die for you? So that you who live now no longer live for yourself, but you live for him who died and rose again on your behalf. We now live for Jesus. There's two Greek words for live. One is bios, which just basically means biology. It just means you're breathing. You're alive. The word that Jesus used when he's talking about live abundantly is that word zoe. It means abundant life. So yeah, we've died. There was never a sense in the Old Testament that you died with that bull that they sacrificed and slaughtered on the cross. There was never a sense at Passover that that lamb that you slaughtered that you died with it. Never a sense of that. In fact, as Paul writes this, countless hundreds of thousands of animals had been sacrificed up to this point. It's estimated over 100,000 lambs would be sacrificed at the Passover because you had to have one for every family. Never did it mean you died with that lamb. But here's what it means at the cross. When Jesus died... I died with Him. By faith in Christ, I've died. But there's good news. I'm still alive. In fact, Romans 4 puts it this way. He who was delivered over because of your transgressions was raised because of your justification. That's what God was up to at the cross. Paying the penalty for your sin, but you live because you're now just in the sight of God. That's your motivation because of Christ. Look at your condition. This is good, y'all. Here's your condition now in Christ. This isn't your condition before you came to Christ. This isn't Saul. This is Paul. He uses that word, therefore. From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, as Saul, all I saw was exterior stuff. I judged everybody according to the flesh. I just looked at their actions and their behavior So I judged everybody that way. In fact, he said, that's the way I judged Jesus. Paul judged Jesus on his preconceived, pre-conversion upbringing. His prejudice towards someone that, that Paul, when he was Saul, would have said, this guy is a rebel, a heretic, a false messiah. He's worthy of death. Something's changed in Paul's life. He's had an encounter with that Jesus that he had been persecuting, and he's now an ambassador for Christ, not the high priest. So he's saying, I don't judge Jesus based on the flesh anymore. I don't know him that way any longer. In fact, listen to just this passage from Acts chapter 26. Here's Paul, Acts 26, 9 through 11. So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even in foreign cities. That's who we're talking about here. That's the Paul who's writing this letter to the church In Corinth. And then here's the good news. If anyone is in Christ. Paul's talking about himself. Folks, if anybody needed a makeover, it was Paul. But more than just putting some lipstick on a pig. More than just putting some makeup on it. He says you're a new creature. Jesus put it this way. Remember when the man approached Jesus and wanted to talk to him about life and Jesus says, you'll you'll never see God unless you're born again. That's what he means by new. When you're born as a baby, you're new. You really don't have a past. Your mom may talk about a few months of kicking in the womb, but folks, you're new. When they placed my first daughter in my arms, first thing the doctor said, I mean, you you really don't want to have stand-up comedians as a doctor. Okay? Okay. Here's what I'm holding her, scared to death, I'm going to do something wrong, I'm going to break her or hold her right, just, you know. He said, watch her arm. I'm like, God, what's wrong with her arm? He said, I got a daughter at home, she can reach around and grab that wallet right over your back pocket. I thought, hey, I don't need a comedian here. But you know what, when I looked into her eyes, I loved this girl. You know why? It wasn't because she had done something for me. It wasn't because she had bought me a tie for Father's Day. In fact, the first Father's Day that she knew it was Father's Day, here's what she said: "Dad, this year for Father's Day, I want a bicycle." <laughs> and I thought, "Wait a minute, that's the one day a year you're supposed to get something for me." And I just got to say, my kids have really outdone themselves. They bought me a grill this year for for Father's Day. Let's give my kids. I got four kids. Give my hand. Some of them are listening. So why did I love her? One, because she had bought me something. One, because she had done anything for me. She was brand new. Why did I love her? Because she was mine. I loved her instantly and still do. So when Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's not talking about universalism. He's talking about people who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. You are now in Christ, denoting a fixed position. That's what the word in means. You're fixed in Christ, you're a new creature. When you look at someone that comes to faith in Christ, they make it look a little bit different on the outside. I mean, they may look a little bit similar on the outside. In fact, maybe they look a lot similar. Maybe you can't really tell a change. But something is taking place inside that is radically different. Their new creation. God didn't just take some household cleaner and clean them up on the outside. He recreated them from the inside. And that's good news. For anyone who is in Christ, you're a brand new creation. The old things have passed away. Here's what the enemy wants to do. Here's what Satan wants to do to you. Now that you've come to faith in Christ, whether it was last week or 20 years ago or 50 years ago or however long ago it was for you, Satan will constantly want to bring up your past. What what happened to your past the day you trusted Christ as your Savior? It's gone. What's happened to your future? He's forgiven you of your sin. See, God can do something you and I can't do. He can forget it. He can separate it as far as the east is from the west. He can send it away. Better than the scapegoat. That was just a picture of what was going to happen at the cross. He sends it away. You're forgiven. Old things are passed away. New things. Fresh things have come to be and then because of that your ministry for Christ last few verses all these things are from God all of this has been affected by God alone and here's that word it occurs five times in three verses a form of the word you've been reconciled I try to think of a good way of illustrating this and First thing I thought of, I thought, teenagers don't even know what this means. We used to have to reconcile our bank statements. You'd get a bank statement and you'd have to take, you know, the checks you'd written, the deposits you'd made, and you kind of hoped that it worked out kind of the way the bank was saying. And for some of you young people, it doesn't work this way. As long as you still have checks in your checkbook, doesn't mean you have money in the account. I've heard dads tell me that. They say, man, my daughter's off at school and she's just (laughs) writing checks. I've called her and said, honey, you don't have any money in your account. She said, i still got checks. Be careful. Be careful. What does the word reconcile mean? It means to change or to exchange. In fact, later in the passage, the word literally means restoration to divine favor. So when Paul says, you're brand new, you've been reconciled. To God. Folks, that's something you couldn't do. If that's kind of what the false teachers, that was the deadly deception of the false teachers in Paul's time and in our day, is that somehow sinners can reconcile themselves to God by moral or religious achievement. Doesn't work that way. How are we saved? We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. But then the 10th verse of Ephesians 2 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So what does that mean? He's got a plan for your life now. He'll let you know when he's done with you on earth, you'll see him face to face. Until then, you're in the ministry. All of us as believers. He's reconciled us to himself. In God's plan, the hostility, the animosity, the alienation has vanished. Enemies have become friends. And he did this through Christ. Not only has he reconciled us, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. In fact, the word ministry here is where we get the word deacon from. And it literally means table waiter. It means servant. So this is your service. You've been given a ministry of reconciliation. Now I love verse 19. Paul says, namely, what's he saying? In other words, here's what I mean by that. To be specific, Here's what I mean by that. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against us. And he's committed to us this ministry or this word of reconciliation. I like MacArthur's quote here. Reconciling the world to himself. Christ didn't die for all men without exception. He died for all men without distinction. What does that mean? It means not everybody's going to come to faith in But he died for men and women of every race, tribe, ethnic group, nationality. That's the cosmos word that he uses here. And he's committed to us a ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, I love this, we're ambassadors of Christ. Who did Paul used to be an ambassador of? Really an ambassador of the chief priest, the high priest. He did their bidding. He went to them to get letters so that he could go into these other synagogues and drag people out and back to Jerusalem, and some of them would be put to death. Paul's changed sides. Not only did he change names, he changed sides, which really the changed name was an indication he changed sides. He's an ambassador now of Christ. Let me just give you a few thoughts about it. We still have ambassadors today. We have ambassadors of the United States that are in foreign countries. Ambassadors do not speak in their own name. They do not act on their own authority. They don't speak their own opinion. They live in a foreign land. You ever thought about that? You're an ambassador with Christ. We're in a foreign land now. This is not our home. Don't get used to this. Because it's all going to be gone one day. Paul says in another letter to the Thessalonians, he says, the earth will melt with intense heat. So those folks who are treasuring up treasure here, you ain't taking it with you. In fact, it won't last for eternity. The only thing that's going to last for eternity is you. And he represents the one who sent him. Paul used to represent the high priest. He now represents Christ. As if God were making an appeal through us. Isn't that cool? Here's God's method now. He's telling people about the good news of the gospel through you. In fact, Paul put it this way. We beg you. That doesn't sound like the old Paul. Paul didn't beg anybody. Paul went in with swords ablazing, blazing And now Paul's saying, we beg you. Be reconciled to Christ. In fact, Paul's heart was such that he actually on one occasion said, I wish that if it would mean that my brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith could come to faith in Christ, I would be accursed. That's the tenderness of Paul's heart. Paul said, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. Make the change. Be restored to divine favor. Let me ask you, has that ever happened for you? Has there ever come a day in your life, a point in your life where you realize I'm separated from Christ. What separated you? Your sin. We were all born that way. Have you ever placed your faith in Christ and asked him to forgive you of your sin? To be your Lord and Savior. The day that happens, you're reconciled to God. He takes up residence in your life through the person of the Holy Spirit. And he begins a work that he's promised to complete. And then verse 21. What a powerful gospel verse. I'll close with this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. What does that mean? Did Jesus become a sinner at the cross? Absolutely not. What did God do? God took the sin that he despised, that he hated, and he put it all on Jesus. Jesus didn't become a sinner at the cross. He was... Perfect in life. He was perfect in death. And yet God took the thing he hated most and allowed his son to die for it. Why? Because he loved you that much. He became sin on our behalf. As the old song said, he he paid a debt he didn't owe. Because I owed a debt I couldn't pay. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Two things, and I'm done. Two things that happened at the cross. There's a lot, but two things I want to focus on real quickly. Your sin as a believer, if you are in Christ, your sins were paid for at the cross. You don't have to pay for them. The other thing that took place is you just inherited the righteousness of Christ. What does that mean? When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees the righteousness of of Christ. What an awesome thought. So we're now called to be ambassadors of that message. How do we do that? We do it with our lives, but yes, we also do it with our mouth. I hear the quote of St. Francis of Assisi and we're really not even sure he said it. But the quote goes something like this, you know, live the Christian life and if if necessary use words. Folks, words are necessary. Paul put it this way in Romans. I'll close with this. This is good news. Romans 10, 13 through 15. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The preacher he's talking about there is not, the guy that stands behind a pulpit and gets paid for it. It's believers who take the gospel message to a desperate world who needs to know Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, first of all, for reconciling us. What an amazing, miraculous thought that we can be exchanged. We can exchange the old for new. In fact, we can be brought back into divine favor. And, Lord, you've given us a ministry as a result of that. It's, it's a ministry to tell other people we're now your ambassador. So, Father, help us today, help us tomorrow and next week to, yes, live the Christian life, but to be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within us. Thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.